you will turn with me to the last part of John 15. We're looking at the last few verses there, last two verses of John 15 and the first 15 of John 16 this morning as it concerns the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in the church today. Before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come here to these words that you spoke to your disciples so many years ago, they still have uh, infinite meaning for us today as your people, your church, those whom you came to save. So we pray that you would open it up to us, that we might know, help us to understand the role of your Holy Spirit in our lives, help us to correctly see that and not see it in ways that would glorify ourselves, but in ways that would glorify you and you alone. Convict our hearts of the sin that's there. Open our ears and our minds that we might hear and know from your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I recently read a piece uh, by R.C. Sproul, theologian pastor R.C. Sproul, concerning this idea of functional Unitarianism in the church today. That's not a word we use all the time. So, what is Unitarianism? Well, biblically and historically, we are a Trinitarian church. Meaning, biblically, because the doctrine of the Trinity is found throughout the entirety of the Bible in very plain words, while a complex doctrine, the basic premise we all know, God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each one equal in power and glory, We agree on this because we are Christians. This is what the Bible says. So we are a Trinitarian church. And so Unitarianism is the idea that God is one person. Which isn't just a bad doctrine. It's heresy. You can't be Unitarian and be Christian. Because in order to be Christian, you have to believe in the one true God. Which is not the Unitarian God. It's some false idol. And so... What Dr. Sproul meant when he said functional Unitarianism in the church is that though the church generally affirms the doctrine of the Trinity, it behaves as if there is only one person of the Godhead. So we'll look at some of those. Much of Christian music today, uh, for example, is very positive and encouraging, as you hear regularly on the radio, but very seldom mentions the name of Jesus or his work or the work of the Spirit only referring to God generically or using pronouns like him and he without even talking about God. This is even happening in some pulpits even, where the word God is only used very seldomly. Jesus is never used. The sermon could easily be any other religion. Um, And so this is a functional Unitarianism. Or or the opposite extreme, they only ever talk about Jesus. Never work with the Father, the Spirit. Talking about them, Jesus is all I need, you'll hear that said, which is true, yes, we do need Jesus for salvation, but it undersells the work of the Father and the Spirit in the life of the believer. And lastly, and I think most applicable to the church today, especially in this part of the country, is the work of the Holy Spirit being highlighted over the work of the Son and the Father. Dr. Sproul makes a comment. He says that more books have been written about the Holy Spirit in the last 100 years than were written in the previous 1900 of the church combined. It's pretty fascinating. 
Why is that? A lot of that has to do with the rise of the charismatic churches, which a lot of charismatic churches are very sound doctrinally. But some of them can get into some interesting things that they attribute to the Spirit, like being slain in the Spirit, which you guys have seen where the people fall down randomly, or hysterically laughing for no seemingly no reason. Seems kind of crazy. Or speaking in tongues as an evidence of the Spirit, as an evidence that a person is a believer. And they'll even say things like, instead of repentance or calling upon the name of Jesus, which the Bible says, that one must get the Holy Ghost in order to be saved. Which is obviously a very dangerous doctrine. And some of the, I'm sure you guys have heard that. So in our text today, Jesus outlines the work of the Spirit. And does so in such a way to comfort his disciples due to his upcoming arrest and murder. And their own persecution, which is upcoming as well, which will follow the ascension of Christ. And so he's helping them to understand why it's good for him to go, and why it's good for the Spirit to be here. And I think we have trouble with that idea sometimes, at least in the way that we behave. And so as we work through this text, we're going to work through some of our own sin issues regarding the Spirit's coming. And we'll consider three points in this text, the coming persecution the Spirit's work, and then the Spirit's authority. So please at this time stand with me as we read God's Word, starting at chapter 15, verse 26, and reading through 16, verse 15. John 15, starting at verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I have seen many things I still have many things to say to you, but cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So first, this idea of the coming 
persecution that they are going to have to endure as apostles and then even us as Christians to some degree as well. Remember last week, Jesus was talking about how we should act as Christians. We should love one another, reminding us that even though we may be loving the world as we should and treating one another as we should, loving our enemies, they will still hate us. Why is that? Because they hated him first. This is a disheartening message because we believe intrinsically, I think, as people that we should get what we deserve in this regard. When we do something nice just for someone, they should at least say thanks or return that for us. We should see that in return. We should that's a normal thought, I think. But not so with the world always, because what are they doing? It's not us, the Christian that they hate, really, but they're thrashing against their creator. And we often feel the brunt of that as his ambassadors on the earth. He ended with the idea from Psalm 35, where he says they hated him without a cause. Remember the Jewish leaders would soon demonstrate this, as we read in the upcoming story. They would deliver Jesus to Pilate to be beaten, crucified, and buried. And so we know that Jesus is going to deal with some persecution. So his disciples have to be struggling with this truth. The end is near, thus brings an end to this incredible ride that they've been on, the places they've been, the people they've seen, the miracles of Christ that they've witnessed. We can only imagine what it must have been like to see all of these things. They've seen redemption literally being brought to life around them as they walked around with the Redeemer. And now he's telling them he would walk with them no more on this earth. And so again, he's comforting them here with the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Helper. The Helper, he says, will bear witness about me. And you will too, because you've been with me since the beginning. And what will happen as a result? He says, they will put you out of the synagogue. Who's they? The Jewish leaders. What does that mean? Well, remember... The message of Christ is the opposite of the Jewish leadership. What did the Jewish leadership demand? They demanded some sort of works in order to have salvation. They demanded some sort of show that you have been saved. And they often would walk around expressing their own morality. But what is Jesus saying? It's not your morality that saves you. It's me. And that goes totally in their face. And so they're going to be removed from the synagogue. Removal from the synagogue meant removal from their entire way of life. Judaism wasn't just their religion, but it was their whole culture. And so they would literally have to lose everything to follow Jesus. This is a real type of persecution that they're going to be facing. But not only that, what did he tell them? Some of them would be killed. And the people who killed them would see that as a service to God. They would see that murder as a service to God. We know these stories. Read the book of Acts. Consider Paul before his conversion when he was called Saul. And he went around arresting Christians. And he saw that as a service to God. The stoning of Stephen. Who did it? Pharisees. As a service to God. Remember when they stoned him? They, they, they called him a heretic. They threw him out in the yard and they killed him. The death of James the Apostle says the Jewish leaders looked on in approval as he was killed by the sword. 
They liked this, that they, the disciples were being killed. And so lastly, Jesus reminds them that why, why, do, why does the world persecute? Why do they kill? Why do they hate the believer? Because they do not know the Father. They will do these things because they have not known the Father. They're lost. They're against Christians because they hate their Creator. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. It's a great picture of this. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. You want to get a quick primer on Old Testament history, read Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen's speech. What's fascinating about Stephen's speech is he uh, is basically just recounting all of Jewish history and in the, in, the, in the light of Jesus, and it just infuriates the Jewish leadership. And we'll read that starting at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Talking about Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They knew who he was talking about. What did Jesus call himself over and over again? The Son of Man. But they cried out, this is the Pharisees again, they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. They screamed, they closed their ears, and they charged him. Completely irrational, not wanting to hear the truth, doing anything to not hear the truth. And they're going to unseat this man who was just up there telling their own history to them. He did call them stiff-necked people, but that's, that's something else. Um, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. I love this passage because here's a man facing actual persecution, death, because of him standing up for what he believes and not saying anything. He wasn't like hurting the people there, he wasn't uh, physically harming them, he wasn't stealing from them, he was just preaching the truth of the gospel, and they ran him out of the synagogue and they, and they killed him. And they aren't any less liable for the wrong that they are doing, they'll be held liable for that murder of Stephen, lest they call upon the name of Jesus. But even Stephen understood here that their that the lost here act in hatred because of their hatred for the Creator. And he wanted them forgiven. According to historical accounts, all the apostles died in very similar ways. Save John, who died in exile by himself, which was probably horrible as well. They were all gracious in death against a mob of people who hated their Lord. And they all died by some sort of weapon or some kind of crazy way. Jesus made sure his disciples were grounded in their faith because the hour was testing, of testing would come, and it did. And they remembered what they were taught. They stood the test. They remembered they would, that he would never leave them or forsake them, that he was preparing a place for them, as, they, as he had said, and that the helper of the Holy Spirit was right there beside them. 
I think that would, we would do well to remember that as we consider the world around us, as we consider all the craziness going on around us. None of it holds a candle to the one who makes it all happen, who controls all things, decides all things, holds all things together, and he says he will never leave us or forsake us. We have nothing to fear. And that brings us next to the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, he says, I did not say these things to you, verse, uh, verse, end of verse 4, to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? Remember, in, verse, or in chapter 13, Peter asked him, where are you going? In chapter 14, Thomas asked him a similar question. Where are you going? We don't know where you're going. So how is this not a contradiction? What's going on here? Someone did ask him, where are you going? Well, consider the context of what's going on here. What did Jesus say? Verse, verse 6, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. These men are all completely broken. They're all very sad. So what he means is that because of this time, because of the hour that is upon them, Jesus' arrest right around the corner, within hours of where they're at, they hadn't had time to process at all where Jesus was going. Jesus says, I'm going back to the Father. I mean, come on. Someone could stand in here and say, hey, I'm getting ready to go to the moon. We wouldn't really be able to process that. We might hear him saying that, but there's, we don't understand how someone just standing here is going to go to the moon. Well, how much more with their friend who's been with them for three years saying, I'm going back to the Father. These men don't understand what he's saying. They don't, they don't quite get it. They're still so sad, they're not understanding what's going on. They knew he was going to be arrested. They knew he said he was going back to the Father. But they had no idea what the implications of that would be for them. What does it mean when Jesus says, says he's going away, that he's going back to the Father? Why is no one concerned about this, but rather concerned with the fact that, that he's just not going to, to be there anymore, as opposed to where he's going? Dr. Sproul gave a really good illustration of this. Uh, I think it works really great for this, particularly concerning our election season being in full swing, for, for uh, better or worse. I think it works really well. So imagine you're supporting a candidate. All of us here in this room, we're supporting a candidate. And uh, we support them with everything that we have. And us and this, our group of devoted followers to this candidate, we're there at the election headquarters on election night. And the results come in and our candidate wins. Imagine our feeling. We're, we're excited for our candidate, right? And then as the celebration, we're all celebrating and, and uh, having fun, the candidate steps up in front and says to us, you know what, rather than take office, I'm just going to stay here and celebrate the whole time. Rather than take up the place that I was meant to be, I'm just going to stay here with you and celebrate. What would be our response? Well, we've devoted our whole lives to making sure you get into this office. It's better for you to go to Washington or wherever our office is and stand for us and represent us and intercede for us rather than being here and celebrating with us. 
So Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Helper is not going to come to you. Where is Jesus going? He's going to be at the right hand of the Father. His appointed place. Where He belongs. Where He's supposed to be. Where He will intercede on our behalf. Right then He was there with the disciples physically. Right there among them. He wasn't speaking directly to the Father per se. Like right next to Him. At His right hand. And the Holy Spirit, which is sent from both the Father and the Son, comes to them as a promise, comes to us as a promise, as a guarantee of the promises that are made to us, as a God who speaks for us, who understands for us. And so we would love to have Jesus right here with us. I mean, how many of us could say we wouldn't want that? We would love that. But if he were here, he wouldn't be at the right hand of the Father. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't be here among us right now. And so that he's saying that when he leaves, he's able to set in motion the promises that have been meant for his people from time, from time and eternity. And his people are meant to do what with those promises? Take them to the ends of the earth, making disciples, spreading his kingdom. It's good for Jesus to be at the right hand of the Father. It's good for the Helper to be here with us. And so what does the Spirit do? He goes into that. I'm sure the disciples are wondering the same thing. If you're sending this Helper, then what is this Helper going to do? Well, Jesus tells us. Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will no longer and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is a hard portion of the text, and just admittedly, it's uh, it's difficult to know what's going on here. A lot of uh, commentators think that this is maybe a real series of events that's going on, or maybe it's a more generalized idea, and. I'll just tell you what I think and what I've read and um, borrowing a lot from John Calvin, who's, who knew quite a bit, and some other theologians, and I, I tend to agree with him. We have to understand what the word convict means first. I think a lot of times when we think the word convict, we think feel bad or trouble. But the word convict literally means to expose. When you're being convicted of your sins, those sins are being exposed, they're being out in the open. To convict means to convince with solid evidence. When you're being convicted of something, there is evidence to show you that what you are doing is not right. That is being exposed. And so this word convict, what is he doing when he's convicting the world? Well, the Spirit's not only a gift to the believers, and we have to understand that, but his power, his authority extends to the world. And what, is his plan, and what is his plan to show himself? How does the Spirit show himself? Think about what the rest of Scripture tells us. How does the Spirit work? The Spirit can use whatever means he pleases. The Spirit hovered over the waters before there was nothing. The Spirit is God. He can do as he pleases, but what is the ordinary means by which the Spirit 
communicates the truth of God to the lost world. Preaching of the word. And so when he says convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe, what does the world have to be told? That they're in sin. That they're in need of a Savior. Who's going to tell them? His people have to tell them. Preaching the word should never blur the lines here, but the preaching of the word should create a dividing line. Preaching of the word should create two responses, and you see this over and over in Scripture. I think particularly as you read the book of Acts and you see Paul preaching to people, there are two responses. People are humble in repentance. They respond to the word in repentance, or they are hardened towards the truth of God, and they respond sometimes even violently towards Paul. We don't preach the word to the world to call them bad people and to point fingers at them because we recognize ourselves as bad people who were just saved. We recognize ourselves as people who are in need of a Savior as well. So our preaching of the word isn't to say bad people, bad people, but our preaching of the word is to simply show them their sin because what does the word do if it doesn't expose them, convict them, and to show them their need of Jesus? And then concerning righteousness. Well, who is righteous? Only one. Jesus. He goes to the Father. It is His righteousness that the world must measure their own against and be found wanting. The the world must see the righteousness of Christ. They must see the perfection of Christ and know that their own righteousness is lacking significantly. Consider Isaiah in Isaiah 6. We all know this passage. He was in the temple. He saw the glory of the Lord. And what did he say? I am undone. I am literally taken apart. There is nothing, there is no part of me that is left on another part of me. He did not, he completely felt like melted when he came against the glory of the Lord. He saw his own frailty upon the glory and the holiness of the Lord. And so the preaching of the word must present to the world a holy God who hates sin and hates the sinner. But it also it must present to the world the only way out from the oppression of this God's wrath, his hatred towards sin and sinners. And what is that way out? Our Lord Jesus, their creator and their judge. The one who would judge them is also the one who would save them if they would call upon his name. They must go to the righteous one in order to be found not guilty. Any attempt of their own will be found wanting and demand justice from their creator. That has to be our message to the world. Anything less, we blur the lines. And then lastly, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Those who don't follow Jesus... Who do they follow? Only one person, the ruler of this world, the evil one, Satan. Again, there is not a third team. There are two, those who are with their creator, those who are in war against him. And this is judged, I think would better be translated, has been judged. It's like a past perfect there in the Greek, which means that it's happening and has happened 
once and for all. It continues on for all eternity. Who has been judged for all eternity? The evil one. Who has also been judged for all eternity? Those who follow him. And so to not side with Jesus is to side with the one who has been judged and will always be judged. For the world to not see their sin and to not see the righteousness of Christ is for them to be judged for now and always. That's not our words. We're not hateful people for preaching those words, but we'll be called hateful people for preaching those words. You have to understand that. Those are the words of their creator. But we have to preach them. He's called us to. Again, it's important for us as the church to realize our responsibility to preach the whole counsel of God to all people, even the parts we don't like, even the parts that make us cringe. Not that our, their salvation is our responsibility, and don't hear me saying that. We don't preach to them that it's somehow going to be guilt put upon our shoulders. None of that's the truth, because what is it that, that uh, judges a man? His own sin. Not, not our lack of ability to, to preach to them. So don't think it's, it's our responsibility or no one's going to do it. The Lord saves whom he will. However, we have been given a task to go and convict the world. And the Spirit of God is with us. And ultimately, He is the actor. He is the one that does this. He is the, the one who redeems. We are just simply His messengers, and we must preach that message. And so lastly, let's look at the authority of the Spirit. He goes on. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what's going on here? He will take those things that belong to the Son, that belong to the Father, and he will declare them to us. What does that mean? Well, let's go to the rest of Scripture and look. Turn with me to Isaiah 11. <clears throat> I read this passage this week and almost wanted to, to preach on it instead. Isaiah chapter 11. Let's look at the first five verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall now bear fruit. Hopefully after John 15, this is starting to ring a bell, the branch and the, and the, the bearing of fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Get that, what we read in verse 2. What is the Spirit giving to us? The things that are the sons, the things that are the fathers. What are these things? Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Obviously, this is a prophecy concerning our Lord Jesus. But because of what the Spirit gives to us, we have these things in him. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one, verses twenty six through thirty. Again, looking for the things that we have in Christ because of the Spirit's work in our life. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, listen to this, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let no one who boasts, or let the one who boasts, Boast in the Lord. What do we have? Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. What is the Spirit bringing to us? These things. One more. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, first three verses here. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, all, all, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So let's consider this. What do we need in order to unlock the blessings of the Lord? The Spirit. How do we get the Spirit? Calling upon the name of the Lord. Being saved. We don't need to be slain in the Spirit. We don't need to breathe like any crazy Holy Spirit glitter or anything like that. We don't need to laugh hysterically or shake on the ground or any of that weird stuff that you see. We call upon the name of the Lord and we are saved. And we have the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. We have sanctification. We have redemption. We have the fullness of the Spirit in us because of what Jesus did for us, not because of any wacky things that we can do. We don't receive some secret special revelation. The Spirit has spoken through men of God and delivered us the Word, and it contains the blessings and assurance of God. We don't need anything else. This is what we need. We don't need any special tricks. We simply call upon the name of Jesus. We receive the Holy Spirit in 100% full measure. 
Why would we ever want to say anything different? And careful, careful if we think that this isn't us sometimes as well. Ultimately, because we want to believe it had something to do with what I did. I did something right, therefore watch me be special super Christian. I mean, it's no different those times that I think it's about me than the person who speaks in tongues or breathes Holy Spirit dust or whatever they're doing. All right, It's no different when I think, look at me, look how good I am, look at my glory. We seek glory for ourselves. We do that all the time, which is not of the true Spirit of God. Who does the true Spirit bring glory to? Those who sent Him, the Father and the Son. That's it. The God we believe in seeks glory for Himself, and He will not share it. The three persons of the Godhead glorify one another in perfection for all eternity. And there isn't room for some fourth usurper who would seek glory for himself or herself through some silly worldly trick or some silly little spiritual discipline that we've gotten real good at and we want to show off. And so let's be careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't attempt to steal the glory of the Lord because he doesn't share it. And I realize, particularly with those charismatic things that I mentioned that I'm largely preaching to the choir here, and I understand that. Not to say that we don't have our own times that we wish to steal the glory from the Lord. Anytime we sin, what do we do? We see that sin as something that would bring us wisdom rather than Jesus Christ. And so make sure we understand it makes us no different. However, where we live in this part of the country, we interact with people on a daily basis. And what are they looking for? They're looking for these secret ways of gaining power and favor in the Lord. We know people like this, brothers and sisters. We do. And we must be equipped to show them the love, that the, the love of God in love. Careful. I particularly struggle with that, as you could probably tell. We need to tell them that the Spirit doesn't work this way. The Spirit seeks glory for the Son and for the Father. It has a particular way of doing that. And how does he do it? Through ordinary means of grace, appointed by the scriptures that he wrote. And so in conclusion, we have a tough work ahead of us. And if you've ever had to talk with people and counsel with people who are struggling with it, you know. Not only to convict the world concerning sin and unbelief, but to minister to our brothers and sisters who seek to share in the power and the glory of God. And so let us minister in love and truth, especially love. You can be truthful to someone and, and not be friendly. And so let us minister in love and truth. The Holy Spirit of God will guide us in love and truth as we teach the world. Let us not grow weary of doing what's right in this area. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, first we pray that you would remove the log from our own eye in this area. I think it's real easy for us to see the craziness on TV and think we're nothing like that. But Lord, anytime we would take your glory, we're just like that. And so help us to see our own sin in this area as we minister to those who struggle, who would put your spirit on a platform that is not real, 
because your spirit glorifies one and one only. And so help us to understand that. Help us to to know that. Help us to know how to minister to one another as we struggle with this sin and to the to the lost world as we preach to them concerning their own sin and the righteousness of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.